Amen, and you may be seated in our Old Testament reading and text for this morning is Psalm 90, and then our New Testament reading is in the Epistle to the Hebrews, chapter 11, 23 to 29, so if you put your finger there, and then... Uh, and then back to, to Psalm 90. We'll read the Old Testament passage first, then the New Testament, and then after the prayer for illumination, uh, we'll expound uh, Psalm 90. Hear the word of God from Psalm 90. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh of our life, or 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work. Of our hands. And then from Hebrews chapter 11, beginning with verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents, because they saw that the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on the dry land. 
But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word, for every word that proceeds from Your mouth, and in particular for the passages just read, that Your Holy Spirit would illumine them to our hearts and minds and, and plant them deeply there, Lord, that Your Word would bear fruit in our lives. But now, Lord, we come to the preaching of Your Word. Your servant stands before You uh, in need of the strength and the power and the unction of the Holy Spirit in order to preach this gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, a gospel that Your servant needs as much as those who, who hear His words. We thank you for this gospel. Now grant, grant your strength, your power, and clarity in the preaching of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm continuing this study that I began a few months back after we finished our study of Philippians in certain psalms. I'm picking particular psalms. There is a meaning to my madness in terms of which psalms I'm picking. And I hope as we go through this, that will become uh, more clear to you. Uh, we've looked at Psalm 1 and 2, which we revisited. We looked at Psalm 8, Psalm 24, Psalm 29. And the last time I was here, we looked at Psalm 80. And now we come to Psalm to Psalm 90. Now, one of the things I've tried to do with each of these is to set them within their context in the Psalter. And to ask the question, why is this psalm where it is in the Psalter? We've done that with each of these as we've worked our way through. We're going to do it with this one too, but different from how I've been doing it, I'm not going to do that up front. We're going to do that at the end, as we come to the end of the sermon, by way of application. But instead, I want to begin by setting this psalm within its historic context. This psalm is unique in many ways. I think the most significant way it's unique is it's the only psalm in the Psalter that I know of that predates King David. David wrote at least 50% of the psalms, at least 75 of them, are attributed to him uh, himself. Um, they're there are, were contemporaries of David who wrote Psalms. Asaph was a contemporary of David. Korah was a contemporary of David. Now that doesn't mean that every time a psalm is attributed to Asaph or to the sons of Korah, it's that Asaph and that Korah because they became clans of singers through the generations. And so a psalm that's attributed to the sons of Korah may be a very late psalm, but it's that same Levitical clan that, that there were sons of the original Korah. And yet with Asaph, uh, we see some psalms that seem to be maybe the original Asaph and then others that may be a descendant of Asaph. Solomon, next generation, at least two of the psalms are attributed to him. I'm convinced he, he wrote at least three of the psalms uh, that are in the Psalter. And then there are psalms as late as the, the, the exile itself, and even one psalm, at least, that is post-exilic. It was written by someone after 
the, the children of, 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 of Israel were sent back by Cyrus to rebuild the temple, reinstitute the worship of God in Jerusalem. Um, and one of those psalms was written, at least one was written by, by, by a post-exilic writer. And so the psalms from David forward uh, cover, in terms of their writing, uh, you know, many, many years, even hundreds of years in generations. But prior to David, there's only one, and that's this one. And it was written hundreds of years before David. This one was written by Moses, by Moses himself. Again, we're going to come back to why it's here in the Psalter uh, at the end. But let's set it within its context. When did Moses write this psalm? Well, we don't know for sure. But what is clear is he wrote it during the wilderness wanderings. Uh, he also wrote the Pentateuch at that time, the first five books of the Bible, the, books of, the five books of Moses during that time. But this psalm was written during that time as Moses contemplated the circumstances of the people under the chastising hand of God because of their unbelief. Uh, you'll recall what happened. God delivered the people from Egypt, from bondage in Egypt, by the show of his mighty right hand through the ten plagues, in particular the final plague, the plague of the firstborn. He led them to the sea. There's this sea in front of them. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. The chariots and the riders of the chariots and the horses are coming after them. And, and, and God parted the Red Sea. He led them through the water on dry ground. And then, of course, we know the water came crashing down upon the horses and riders. They were thrown into the sea. Another song of Moses uh, that, that, that celebrates that great victory. Then he led them to Sinai. And they encamped at Sinai for two years. And while they're there, God entered into covenant with them as Moses went up into the mountain, received not only the Decalogue, but also all of the covenant. Uh, much of the book of Exodus, uh, all of the book of Leviticus, the first ten chapters or so in the book of Numbers take place when they're encamped there at Sinai. After they receive that covenant then, it's time for them to enter the promised land. And so as they, they go to prepare to enter the land, you remember what happened. Moses sent 12 spies. These 12 spies, one from each of the 12 tribes, went into the land. They were to go in on this mission to see what's going on there. They were to bring back produce from the land. When they returned, you'll recall that there was a cluster of grapes that was so heavy it took two men to carry it. I mean, this is how this land is abundant with milk and honey and grapes and wine and everything that God promises for his people. It took two men to carry them on, on their backs there. But when the, when the spies made the report, ten of the spies said, yes, there's, there's fruit there and everything. Oh, but there's giants in the land. You know, they're too big for us. They're too many for us. You know, we can't take them. But there were two spies. You remember Caleb and Joshua who said, No, God will give them into our hands. This is the land of promise. We need to press on and go into the land. Now, let me ask you a question. 
this is trivia a bit, but it is connected. Do you know which two tribes Caleb and Joshua are from? Have you ever asked that question? Caleb is from the tribe of Judah. Joshua was from the tribe, anybody want to guess? Ephraim. If you remember last time I was here, we looked at Psalm 80. Psalm 80 focused upon Joseph and the fall of the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., but promises made to and through Joseph. Remember, Joseph had two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and he brought them to his father who was blind with old age for blessing, and he positioned them in front of his father so that Manasseh was in front of his father's right hand and Ephraim was in front of his father's left hand in order for Manasseh to get the blessing of the firstborn and what did, what did his father do, Jacob? He crossed his hands, and his right hand fell upon Ephraim. And Ephraim got the blessing of the firstborn, and Joseph protested, and his father would not retract that blessing. And then in history, what do we see? Ephraim becomes the most prominent tribe in the northern kingdom. This was the that tribe like that in the promised land after they were, they were there. This was the tribe from which Joshua came. The two men, faithful men, represent what would later be both the southern and the northern kingdom of God as God's covenantal faithfulness continues. But we know what happened. The people believed the ten and not the two and were persuaded because of their lack of faith. Now here's something a lot of people don't know. Do you know how far it is from, really, from, from Egypt to the promised land? I mean, if you were just to set out walking the way they did in that day, do you know how long it would take you to make that journey? About 10 days. About 10 days. Okay, let's say you have 800,000 people, an estimate of those that were sent out, and all of their livestock... Still, it's probably a matter of weeks is what it would take. Not long at all. It's not a long journey. And yet how long did they wander? For 40 years. Why? Because they were not men of faith, but they were faithless. They believed the ten spies rather than the two faithful spies. And therefore God had them wander in the wilderness one year for every day that the spies were in the land of promise. And that was to ensure what? That every single one who came out of Egypt that was 20 years and older would perish in the wilderness and not go into the land of promise because of their faithlessness. Save Caleb and Joshua. Even Moses died upon Mount Nebo. He saw the promised land, but he didn't enter. Not for that sin, but for another one. When he didn't hallow God at the rock, and when he struck the rock in anger twice rather than to speak to the rock, as God says. God said, you'll not enter in. They all perished. The first generation perished in the wilderness. It's the second generation 
that went in under the direction of Joshua and took the land of possession that God had given to their father Abraham long before and to go in and conquer and possess that land. Now, that's the background. That's the history. Moses writes this psalm in the midst of the wilderness, in the midst of God's hand of chastisement upon his own people. I'm going to divide the psalm in this way, and I'm I'm following here Derek Kidner. I don't know if you're familiar with, with Kidner. He was an Old Testament scholar, wrote many commentaries, and is really known for his commentary, his major commentary on the Psalms. But he wrote an abbreviated version that's in the Tyndale commentary series. And I'm, I'm following his outline because I just like the way he broke it down and, and, and the terms that he used. One and two, God the eternal. Three through six, man the ephemeral. And I just like that word. You could say man the temporal. Well, just use temporal. Now, ephemeral, it, it just sounds better, I think, is part of it. But, but something that's ephemeral is something that's, that, that's here today and it's gone tomorrow. It's, it's almost as if it's, it's a mist. Does it even really exist? Something that's here today and gone tomorrow, something that is so temporary, it's ephemeral. And, and this is about mankind. And then 7 to 11, man under wrath, under God's wrath and judgment. And then verses 12 to 17, the God of grace. You see, there's hope against the backdrop of this judgment of God's wrath that we see in the text. Okay, let's walk through the psalm. And then we're going to come back and place it in the Psalter and make application at that point. He begins by saying, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. I'm going to save that to the end to expound the significance of that verse. But now listen to what he says about God. Verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And only God is eternal. In Sunday school... You've been studying the attributes of God. And and eternality is an attribute that only belongs to God, not to creation. Creation is temporal. Everything about creation is temporal and came into existence and it exists by the by the, the will and by the power of God Himself. But God is eternal. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Even time belongs to creation. Now, you can't get your mind around that. You just can't. We cannot understand anything except for the process of time as we see it in this created, in this created world, this created universe that we're a part of. But, but even time is a construct that God himself has created to govern his creation. But it doesn't govern him. Nothing governs him. He is eternal from everlasting to everlasting. Now, in contrast to that, man is ephemeral. Look at what he says in 3 to 6. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. 
for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or a watch in the night, but it's carrying through underneath the temporal ephemeral existence of man is the eternality of God. For God, a day is like what? He says in the text. Or a thousand years is, 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 is like what? Um, it's like yesterday when it's past, or it's like a watch in the night. For God, well, we, a thousand years, we think that's a long time. No, it, it's nothing. It's nothing. It's nothing. Not before the eternal God. Then look at what he goes on to say. You sweep them away as with a flood. Talking about mankind. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. And in the evening it fades and it, and it withers. This is the existence of mankind upon the earth. You're like that grass that the sun shines, it pops up. The sun gets hot by the end of the day. It's gone. That's you in terms of this creation. Now, of course, we know the soul is immortal. <laughs> and we know that, and we don't know how it is that God is going to do this in terms of time going forward in the creation order, but sustaining that for eternity. But we know that it's true. But your history here is like this. You have to understand that. He's going to go on to say you get three score and ten. The ESV knows we don't know what scores are, and so the ESV translates it, 70 years. I just got two more. <laughs> I mean, I'm getting close. Some of you are beyond that. So it says three score and ten, maybe another score, maybe 80, maybe 90 more, getting to be 90. Maybe a hundred, not very many make it to a hundred. A few. It's like this. Do you understand? It's like this in relation to eternity. Your here on the earth is like this. That's what it's like. Now, it's an important like this. Your eternity is determined by what God does in this. And I've said this to you before. It's not just our three score and ten, maybe plus ten, maybe plus twenty, maybe plus thirty, not much more beyond that. That's true of all of human history in light of eternity. From the creation, from the creation of Adam until the consummation and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's like this. The way God counts time, people say, well, Jesus is never going to come back. It's been 2,000 years. No, it's been two days, you see, according to this calculation. It's nothing to God, these 2,000 years. And yet, how important is this like this? The history of redemption, of redeeming a people for himself that will dwell with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth as the bride of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, all of that history unfolds in this human history in creation. It is an important like this in terms of 
just like your three score and ten is important as well. That's why at the end, the psalm is actually calling upon us to redeem the time that God gives us here. It has eternal consequences. Man, the ephemeral, now man under wrath. Listen, verses 7 to 11. For we are brought to an end by your anger. When God created Adam and Eve, he created them to live forever. You need to recognize that. Before them lay their, what we call in theology, their eschatological end, which was a higher communion and union bond with God. Had Adam passed probation without sin, without judgment, that would have happened to him and all of their posterity. And there would be no sin, no ruin whatsoever. But they broke covenant with God. And therefore God's wrath is manifest upon man. And the word here is anger. God is angry at sin. It's his disposition towards sin at all times. God's wrath is not a temper tantrum. That's the way our wrath is sometimes expressed, sinfully. We we lose our tempers and we fly off the handle. Well, not no, don't ask my wife, just don't, please. We, We lose our tempers sometimes, we fly off the handle. That is not what God's wrath is like. It is a constant disposition towards wickedness and sin. And this is the sentence that we are under because of Adam's sin and we are born sinners and because of our sin. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. We read the law, what to expose our sins. It leads us to confession of our sins. There's all kinds of sins that we hide from ourselves even that we don't see. But in the light of God, all is exposed. And it's ugly. It's ugly in every single one of us. And this is why God is angry. And you might think, well, where's the good news? We need to get to the good news. This is a lot of bad news. You don't understand the good news of the gospel except for against the bad news of the darkness of sin and its ruin that it has brought. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Now, we need to stop, and we need to pause, and we need to step back. And why? Because God has entered into this fallen, broken world with redemption and with the salvation of a people for himself. 
This is describing what life is like in this age in which we live. And because of sin and because of ruin, this is what it looks like. And it's hard and it's difficult for everyone. Suffering is what you will experience in this life, whether you're a believer or not. Now, sometimes that suffering is because of your sin. If you're an unbeliever and you've rejected God, your heart's at enmity with God, that wrath and that judgment and the sorrow that it brings and the sorrow it will bring in the age to come in hell itself, inflicted, you're the one who caused it and brought it upon yourself. And in the end, the people will not be surprised when they learn the truth that they hide from themselves now. But there's also the suffering that we experience and the righteous experience, even though they don't cause it themselves. You think of our brothers and sisters in Neon. You know, where. I don't know that you guys saw the videos that our pastor Jay took. Our pastor in Neon, he and his family live in an upstairs apartment in this big, used to be a uh, department store building that we renovated into a church. And the church, they had a beautiful sanctuary. I mean, gorgeous. The woodwork in there was just staggeringly beautiful. That's on the downstairs level. And when he's awakened in the middle of the night with his, an alarm on his phone, and he was just going to turn over and go back to sleep. But his son was home. His wife and daughter were actually in Georgia visiting friends, family when this happened. And his son got up and looked outside. And you got a six-foot river flowing underneath your apartment and destroying everything. On the floor below, on the base floor, seven feet of water in the sanctuary itself. It all had to be torn out, torn out. What sin did Jay commit? Or did the saints who gathered there Lord's Day after Lord's Day, they brought this catastrophe upon them? None. But floods (laughs) are warning judgments. We saw that in Psalm 29. Floods, after the great flood, are warning judgments like we saw in Psalm 29. But the righteous sometimes suffer the fallout of living in a fallen and broken world. It's why there are abscessed teeth and and these that must be replaced as we get older and older. It's why friends get cancer and family Members get cancer. We live in a broken and fallen world. And even the righteous suffer in this life because of the world in which we live. That's all caused by Adam's sin. And so life here is going to be marked by a measure of suffering, whether it's your sin that causes the affliction or not. And sometimes it does, And sometimes it's not. But then there's a third kind. You have have the unbeliever who rejects God and what he suffers, he deserves. You have the believer 
who believes in God but sometimes suffers because of the ruin that's come because of sin. But then you have the believer or believers who are unfaithful to God, who sin against God, who break covenant with God. They're in covenant with him. He's entered into covenant with them. They are his people. And yet because of their sin, his judgments come upon them, not as final judgments, but as chastisement. And we suffer sometimes the chastising hand of God. And you need to learn to welcome it. That's how sometimes God gets your attention. To look at yourself, to peer into your heart. And when Moses is writing this psalm, this is exactly what the children of Israel are experiencing, including him. Instead of a matter of weeks to go in and then God give them the land of plenty where there's grapes galore and milk and honey, there are no grapes in the wilderness for 40 years. There's no blessing beyond what? Water from a rock and manna every single day. The same thing. Manna. It's God's provision. But it's a lean provision. It's God's hand of chastisement is upon his people because of their own sin. And it's to warn you to run to Jesus. To confess your sins. To seek his forgiveness. And yet the children of Israel continued over and over again to be a stiff-necked people, even in the wilderness wanderings. Can you imagine that? There's a pillar of cloud to lead them at day. There's a pillar of fire by night. Theonophic, you know, appearances of God in these forms before them. They saw the lightning and heard the thunders of the voice of God on top of Mount Sinai. Plus saw a sea parted and crossing on dry land and their enemies being drowned in the sea. And yet they yearned for the leeks of Egypt. Don't be so hard on them. We can fall asleep ourselves and become presumptive. And God's hand of chastisement is that of a father who loves his son and therefore he disciplines you in order to sanctify you, to bring you to repentance and to a better communion with him and everyone around you. There is that kind of of chastisement that comes upon the people of God. And that's not confined to the Old Testament and to the wilderness wanderings at that time. And you can see all of these at work here in this particular text, but in particular, the chastisement of God upon his covenant people. Because he's a covenant-keeping God, and he will take that second generation in, and he will give them that land flowing full of of milk and honey. And they won't have to build cities. They're already built. They just have to occupy them. God is faithful over and over again. And he's faithful to you over and over again, even though you, like your forefathers, sometimes are unfaithful. Let me make one qualifier here that I think is important. 
you have less excuse than they did. You have provision in God's grace that's far greater than the children of Israel did. Sometimes we'll read this and say, at least it's not just me. Look at what they did. I don't think I've been that bad. Anybody ever do that? Or take comfort in the sins of our forefathers as if that somehow excuses our sin. Now, they had the presence of the Holy Spirit. The notion the Holy Spirit didn't come until Pentecost is unbiblical. Or there would be no salvation in the old. But there is a measure of fullness that comes in Pentecost following the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a measure of tremendous blessing beyond what our forefathers had in the old in terms of our union with Christ and the indwelling of the Spirit of God. In clarity of the revelation of God in the face of His revelation in Christ of Jesus. And so when we stumble and fall and break covenant, we share more culpability because of the greater measure of God's provision for you in your own personal sanctification by union with Christ and the filling of the Spirit of God. So be careful you don't let their stiff-necked way of living excuse being lax in your own walk with God but run to Jesus and cling to him who died for you and you are united with him it's Christ in you the hope of glory and it's in far greater measure under the new covenant than it is under the old so just something for us to remember and yet it's clear that in this life we struggle with the flesh we struggle with temptation we fall into sin, and we do it every day. And God sometimes chastises us. And I'm not saying an absolute tooth, uh, abscess tooth is, does, is that chastisement, or that a, a knee that's about to be replaced is, is that kind of chastisement. That's from living in a world where we have three score and ten, and these bodies wear out. But sometimes it can be. I preached a funeral several years ago. Probably, well, a long time ago. Man, time flies. 30 years ago. <laughs> the man who died, died of AIDS. He died of AIDS contracted by sinful, repeated sinful behavior that's an abomination to God. His brother was a deacon in my church and loved the Lord. This man didn't have a pastor. I never met him, but I was asked to do the funeral. <clears throat> Shortly before his death, he professed faith in Christ and actually was baptized in a Baptist church. And he was reading his Bible when I went to visit the family and I said, are there any passages you would like for me to turn to in the service? You know, Psalm 23, some of the ones that, that typically people want to have read. 
And I just a thought struck me because I, I, I'd learned that he was reading his Bible. I wonder what he was reading when he died. And so his sister ran into the room, got his Bible, brought it out because he had a bookmark, opened it up. It could, nothing really struck us. And she said, but you know, he read a devotional book every day. This is kind of, <laughs> this is one of these kind of, I'm not charismatic, but one of these kind of charismatic sort of things that happen sometimes. She said, let me go get the devotional book. And she opened it up, and it was the marked a few days before, because it was by date, a few days before. There wasn't anything that really struck us as relevant. And I said, wonder what it said the day he died. And the text from Psalm 119 was, I was glad that I was afflicted, though I might know thy statutes. I said, we got a sermon text. I was glad that I was afflicted that I might know thy statutes. And there were people there who hated the preacher after that sermon. I didn't call out the nature of his sin. Everybody knew what it was. And there were many acquaintances of him who were still in the midst of that sinful lifestyle that were present there. But I said, if, if his testimony is true, he turned to Christ in the weeks before his death. These would be the words he would say to the Father when he made, met him face to face. Chastisements from God are good for you. In this case, brought him to Christ if that testimony it's true, and there seemed to be evidence there was. Okay, let's move on to the God of grace. Let's move to the good news. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. In other words, okay, your time's short here, three score and ten. We know that. It's ephemeral. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. But God has you here in it. And so number those days. Redeem them. How do you live them? Before the face of God into his glory. In light of the age to come. And then you have the cry from the wilderness. Return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants? We're still here. We're still here in the desert, you see. Will your hand of chastisement be on us forever? And of course the answer is no. It's 40 years. And then it's lifted. The countenance of God will be lifted upon his people. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. And here's the thing that becomes so significant with this. It doesn't matter whether you're in the midst of suffering. Satisfaction of your days is not the absence of suffering. It's honoring and glorifying God in the midst of it. You see the difference? It's the lesson we learned from Philippians. Paul in prison, almost giddy with excitement because it served to advance the gospel while he's in bonds. It's not about... Fundamentally, I mean, we pray for healing and sometimes God grants it. That's wonderful and good. But it's not about the absence of suffering. It's about the presence of communion with our God. And yet there's nothing wrong with crying out for relief in the midst of suffering. 
And the Psalms are full of it. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us as for many years if we have seen evil. And I think here it's talking about, yes, in the, going into the promised land, <coughs> but that's typological. And there's a greater fulfillment of that. Of the days that we are here now, but satisfy us in the age to come when Christ comes in consummating glory. You see, as we come into the fullness of the revelation of God in the New Testament, let, the, let your work be shown to your servants, your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord uh, our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. In this time that's here, you don't just sit back and say, well, it's only here today and it's gone tomorrow. I'm just going to wait and endure until it's gone. No, go to work. Go to work for the kingdom. And then pray that God would bless that work. Because that's important here to you now as well. It's why God has you where he has you. I don't have time to relate this story, but ask me sometime about how, my, how God put my dad in the place that he's in. And for right now, it's very, very clear. It's to witness to one particular young lady that's taking care of him. And the Lord used a jar of syrup to open the door. That's the story you want to hear sometime. That's extraordinary. But quickly, let me place it here. Why is this psalm here? Remember, quickly, there are five books in the Psalter. If Dr. Morales is right, there's a chronology. Book one, the rise of the Davidic kingdom. Book two, the glory of the Davidic kingdom. Book three, the collapse of the Davidic kingdom. Where we were, we looked at Psalm 80. Book four, the absence of the Davidic kingdom, which corresponds with what? The Babylonian captivity. Why would a psalm written by Moses in the wilderness generations before be the first psalm in book 4? The theme of that is God's hand of chastisement. They've been taken out of the land. The temple's been destroyed. They're among a people who speak foreign languages they can't even understand in God's judgment. It's because of the first verse. Look at what Moses says. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Whether it was Father Abraham in the land initially, when you said, this is going to be the land that I'm going to give it to you. Whether it's when Joseph is in Egypt and the, his brothers come there, first of all, in blessing as they fled that famine, but then later when they were in bondage in Egypt, when there was a Pharaoh that didn't remember Joseph anymore, Lord, you've been our dwelling place. You're our dwelling place when it was Abram, our father. You're our dwelling place in the bondage in Egypt. You're our dwelling place when we stood before the Red Sea. You are our dwelling place when the waters parted. You are our dwelling place when we came to Mount Sinai. You are our dwelling place in the wilderness. Under your hand of chastisement still, you are our dwelling place. 
so that as they go later, because of sin and breaking covenant, they're taken away into captivity. Those who are faithful can say, Lord, even in Babylon, you are our dwelling place. He never forsakes his people. He's a covenant-keeping God. Now the application to us here, no matter what we are facing, even in a church that meets in this little dance studio that's here now. Even with all of the joys and the sorrows and struggles and the prayer list is long in this little congregation. Lift your heads up. God himself is your dwelling place. He is your tent. He is your refuge. Run to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for this profound psalm written by Moses. But oh, so clear in what it teaches to us. Oh Lord, we thank you that you are our dwelling place, no matter what. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.